The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning we continue in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us on two dangerous ditches on the opposite side, sins that we probably are leaning more towards one or the other, but we need to hear them both. Jesus will warn about judgmentalism. That's the first handful of verses, verses one through five. And then Jesus will warn about the inability or failure to judge rightly. And that's the second half of Matthew seven. We need both. And God knows that some of us need the one more than the other, and he'll help press that to us today, I'm sure. But this is a passage that is so easy to know out of context. And that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite comic strips growing up, which was Charlie Brown. Maybe you know Charlie Brown or Snoopy or the whole Peanuts gang, and I love them. And I loved reading all of those as a kid. And there's a running gag in the comic strip where they are assigned as elementary age children Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, all 1,136 pages. And they are assigned to read that book on the last day of Christmas break. And they're supposed to have it read before they come back over school, which is not very nice to do to elementary age children. Charlie Brown manages to read the dust jacket of the book, which reminds me of that old quote. I took a speed reading course and read War and Peace in 20 minutes. It involves Russia, which is, I think, the about uh, the amount of the uh, book report he had. So he writes this report the last day, right before he comes back to school. His teacher hands him the report and he receives a D minus on the report. And, and he tells his friend that the teacher handed me a report and Gave me a, a, a D minus, and his friend said, "Well, what did you say to the teacher?" And he said, "I congratulated her on her remarkable insight, <laughs> which is which is true." Now we all have experienced the feeling where someone takes a text message we wrote, or an email, or a conversation we had, and they grab just one snippet out of it, and it didn't really represent everything we were saying. That's frustrating, isn't it? When someone takes you out of context, they didn't really take into consideration everything you were saying. No one likes when that's done to them. But we as Americans have been doing it to Jesus a lot and we especially do it to Jesus with Matthew 7 verse 1. There's a book written by Eric Bargerhoff and it's called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And in his book he takes all the verses that people tend to cherry pick out of context and then misunderstand and misapply. Do you want to guess what was the number one most misused verse in all of the 66 books of the Bible? Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, many times in my life as a Christian, I've been at a park or I've been talking to a coworker or I've been out and about and someone paraphrastically would say, hey, doesn't the Bible say don't judge people? You've probably had that experience before. You know what? I've never once ever had somebody paraphrase or quote John 7, 24, where Jesus says, judge with right judgment. No one's ever quoted that one out of, out of context to me. But they know Matthew 7, verse 1. Now here's the danger, though. We could overlook either one of these things. We could overlook how serious judgmentalism is, because it is a serious sin. Or we could overlook the other side, the failure to judge rightly. 
Praise God, Jesus knows that we have a tendency to fall off one of those sides. And so in today's text, we're gonna do both because they're actually both there. So in Matthew 7, we're gonna see both. Now, if you're a note taker or if you downloaded them on our website uh, when you came in here or if you received the email, it's really very, very simple. The two big points are this. The first is beware of the danger of judgmentalism. Here's how I would define judgmentalism. You have moral certainty, you know what's right or wrong, but you have no moral clarity about your own failures and you have no moral charity with others. That's judgmentalism. The other sin is the failure to judge rightly. And that's where you have moral clarity, you're aware of your own shortcomings and you have tons of charity with other people but you have no moral certainty. You're unable to say something's right or wrong. You've lost that, it's eroded. All right, the first one, judgmentalism. When you have moral certainty, but you have no clarity of your own flaw or no charity with others, let's look in God's word together. Verse one, these are the verses that were read. We're gonna explain them a little deeper this morning. Verse one, judge not, that you do not, that you be not judged. The passive verb is implying someone else would judge you and that someone else is God the Father. Jesus often speaks of him in the passive verb in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse two gives us a reason why we should be so careful before we quickly judge others. Verse two says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Meaning the harshness with which you are critical and condemning of others is the same stance and posture. God the Father will be harsh and critical with you. A very sobering warning there. Now the word judge is the Greek word krino. And in this context, it doesn't mean don't think. And it doesn't mean don't evaluate or don't use critical observational skills. He's going to tell us to do that in verse 5. It means don't condemn harshly. Don't unnecessarily be critical, or as one commentator put it, just stop criticizing others. He's talking here about a quickness to condemn. J.C. Ryle wrote it this way, it is a fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, or a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. Now in verse three and four, on this dangerous sin of judgmentalism, Jesus asks very penetrating and provoking questions in verse three and four. And as I read them, try to think of what you think the answer would be in your own heart. Verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse four, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there is a log in your own eye. Why, as humans, do many of us have such crystal clear, high definition definition clarity about the failures of other people, and yet we have such blurriness and haziness about our own failures? What is it about us that causes us to do that? Jesus' language here, by the way, is actually sarcastic, and it's meant to be humorous. If you were the original listeners, verse four would have made you laugh out loud as it was supposed to. The idea is imagine your spouse or your child has an eyelash stuck in your eye. Have you ever had that before? You're like in the mirror looking all these directions to get the eyelash out and you're using every point of vision or a magnifying glass to catch that little tiny eyelash while emerging from your eye is a 45 foot telephone pole. That's the kind of imagery he's using in verse four. It's meant to be ridiculous. 
Why is it that we can notice something so small in someone else while we miss something so big in ourselves? Why do we have the observational powers of Sherlock Holmes with others and yet we're blind as a bat with ourselves? Why? And here's the answer. It's the same reason that materialism was warned of in last Sunday's text because materialism and this Sunday's text, judgmentalism, are both I sins. And eye sins, like contact lenses, means you don't know you have them. You genuinely don't. You see life through them. And so when you're critiquing other people, you really think you're doing them a service. You really believe God has bequeathed you with the microscopic skill of fault finding to make others' lives better. (laughs) You don't know that what you're doing is actually a harmful thing that comes out of our own sinful criticism. Judgmentalism is an eye sin that causes us to overlook the major shortcomings in ourselves, but to latch on to the comparatively minor offenses in others. Let me give you some examples of how this works. In conversation, maybe you're over lunch and you're discussing life and then somebody's name comes up. And then you start to talk about them, but then you sort of deftly weave into the conversation something negative about that person. Well, did you know that they, or did you realize this fault about them? Or did you know that time that they, that's how judgmentalism works. You just weave things in that don't need to be said and you don't think anything of them. Or perhaps judgmentalism can emerge in a, I just call it like I see it skill. I just see it like it is, and I just say it like it is. God has gifted me to find the shortcomings of others, we may convince ourselves. That's how judgmentalism works. I was reminded of how dangerous judgmentalism is because it blinds us to opportunities in our own life to grow. And as I was driving this week, preparing for the sermon, I thought of an illustration of this. One of the most dangerous positions you could have had in a kingdom several hundred years ago was to be the portrait painter of the king. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because if you're painting the king's portrait and then you turn it and show it to him and he doesn't look the way he wants to look, your life is in jeopardy. But you know, the world hasn't changed that much, has it? Because when we take pictures of one another and then you see that picture of yourself on your friend's phone, you say, oh, don't post that. I don't look the way I want to be seen, <laughs> right? And as a culture, because we're so concerned that others can't see us the way we should be seen, we've now invented selfies so that we can determine how we look and we can be the ultimate judge of our own perception. Now, what we do with pictures actually is something of a revelation of what we do with ourselves all the time. We, in our own minds, have a version of who we are. We have decided what we are like, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, what makes us a good person. And so in our mind, we've convinced ourselves of what we are. And so if someone else speaks to us and sees us differently than the version of ourselves that we've made, it can be paradigm shattering and we can be angry about it. We can easily find the speck in someone else's eye. We have a hard time seeing the beam in our own. Now Jesus is loving us here by telling us that it is for our good to have that speck removed and to have that beam removed from obscuring it. So look now in verse five, Jesus will tell us to make judgment. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let, verse five has so much wisdom in it. Let's pause on it for a moment. Did you notice Jesus still wants us to actually make judgments about others, right? So he still wants you to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not telling you you're not allowed to notice things in others. You're actually supposed to, but there's a qualification that you have to do first. First, you have to be quick to confess your own failures. So the prerequisite to helping anybody else is to first receive criticism about my own shortcomings. If I can do that, then I have the green light from Jesus to help other people. That is how the sequence works. Because it's frighteningly easy to be ignorant of ourselves and yet arrogant in our assessment of others. One of my favorite authors who in narrative form can make this point so powerfully is Flannery O'Connor. And many of her short stories, she'll share a story about someone who seems to be blind to their own failures, but acutely aware of others and then how they have a hard time with grace. One of her stories in Mystery and Manners, O'Connor writes this, to know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against truth, not the other way around. And the first product then of self-knowledge is humility. Humility enables one to know oneself truly in light of who God is and therefore to help anyone else. Karen Swallow Pryor, who now teaches at Southeastern in her very good book on reading well, defined it this way. The virtue of humility most simply defined is an accurate assessment of oneself. And of course, it is impossible to assess oneself rightly apart from God. Now this, brothers and sisters, is why the book of James calls the Bible a mirror. Because in order for me to get the beams out of my own, my own eye, I need a perfect mirror that can expose to me who I truly am without the ability for me to Photoshop. <laughs> and that's what the Bible does. And so the Bible gives us the opportunity to grow so that we can grow and help others grow. Now there's a danger, and here's what I think we should acknowledge. Though it is true that outside the walls of the church, there is a tendency to fail to judge rightly, let us all be humble enough to confess that within the walls of the church, there can be a bad tendency to be overly judgmental. Something sad can happen when you learn more and more of the truth. You can start to grip it like a weapon rather than using it as a scalpel on yourself. How do I know that? Because I am a recovering spiritual crank myself. <laughs> Sadly, what God has taught me over the years is that many of the times when learning the truth should have made me more humble and reasonable because of my own sinfulness, as I started to memorize and learn scripture, I initially became more combative and argumentative. Sadly, to my shame, I was the kind of person that had you known me in college, I would have wanted to get into a debate with you, and I would have wanted to show why I'm right because of my sinfulness and my blindness to my own fault. But the scriptures aren't actually written to do that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Whenever you allow your relationship to the truth to become theoretical and academic, you have fallen into the grip of Satan. 
The moment in your private study of the Bible you cease to come under the power of the truth, you've become a victim to the devil. If you can study the Bible without being searched and examined and humbled, without being lifted up and made to praise God, or moved with sorrow over what God has endured in you, or amazed at the beauty and wisdom of what Christ has done for you, if you not feel as much a desire to sing when you're alone in your study with the Bible, as when you're standing on the stage or in the pulpit or in the pew, then you're in bad shape. You should always feel something of the humbling and delightful sense of the word of God. Now my own journey as a spiritual crank has reminded me how easy it is to know the truth and to not be shaped by the truth. To use the Bible rather than the Bible conforming me to the character of Christ. May God help us, may God help me to not be as naturally judgmental as I am. One of the scary things about judgmentalism is it can flip priorities. You can start to be really worked up over very small things and be blind to things that are actually big things. Now I'm about to tell you a true story that you're not going to believe is true, but it is. Craig Keener writes of the story of Joe Bailey. Joe Bailey was at a Bible study at his church several years ago. And in the Bible study, in the home group, one of the members of the Bible study who was there was a person who in World War II was a Nazi who fought to actually exterminate Jews in concentration camps and was on, he was a participant of the Holocaust. And in the Bible study, they somehow got on the topic of things that are right or wrong. And the former Nazi soldier said this, He said, you know, I really could have gotten a lot higher up in Hitler's army, but I have morals and I took a stance. And everyone thought, well, what did you take a stance on? And he said, well, what kept me from my promotion in the army was that I I took a stance against social dancing. So, So here's a man who murdered God's people, exterminated them in the Holocaust, and is still, 60 years later, bitter that he wasn't promoted because he was opposed to social dancing? But this is how judgmentalism works. It causes you to think that you have been morally perfect in areas that are of minor significance, when in fact you've been terribly immoral in matters of major significance. The beam in your own eye blinds you to what you really are. So it actually is a gift of the good physician when he points out to us the things that are hurtful to us. Now there is an opposite danger. As a picture to how much America has changed over the last hundred years, D.A. Carson said, if you took a poll several generations ago of what verse people in America could quote, most of them could quote or at least paraphrase John 3.16. If you took a poll today as to what verse of the Bible most Americans could quote or at least paraphrase, it actually would be Matthew 7 verse 1, do not judge. And so maybe more today than at any time in American history, we not only need to be warned of judgmentalism, and may God help us all there, but we also need to be warned of the failure or ability to make a right judgment. And so in Matthew 7, Jesus actually keeps talking. He doesn't only warn about judgmentalism, he also warns about the failure or inability to judge rightly. And he gives us a hint at that at verse six, which you look in God's word in Matthew seven, verse six. This is a complex verse that I thought about spending a lot of time on. I can't spend as much time on it as I want. I wanna simply point out something obvious. In this verse, Jesus 
commands us as his disciples to make judgment calls. Look in verse six. Do not give to dogs what is holy, which means you have to make a judgment call. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, which means you must exercise judgment, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In the passage, Jesus is warning about people who will not be receptive to truth and knowing when you need to make a judgment to move on. And now in the second half of the chapter, he's going to give four pairs where all of us must, must make a judgment about them. We must judge which of them we are. And so now we're gonna jump down to verse 13. Lord willing, next week we'll do the verses in the middle. Before I get into it, uh, maybe this will help you think about it. I, I have young kids at home and my mom bought us a Highlights Magazine subscription. And so each month we're really excited about the Highlights Magazine and we read through all of them together. Maybe you know enough about these magazines to know they do a spot the difference section where there's two pictures that look very, very similar, but there'll be some minor differences between them. And it's a way for children and adults, I've been learning <laughs> to notice the differences between these pictures. Now Jesus is gonna give us four pictures. And in each one, you, and I need to spot the difference. Ready? Here's the first one, verses 13 through 14, two gates or roads. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Are you ready to spot the difference? So far, what would you spot? Where are most people going? Destruction, right? And those who enter it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Are you able to spot the difference? One way is narrow, it is few people. One way is broad and it leads to destruction. There's one other key difference, did you notice it? One is called easy and the other is called hard. Now that confuses a lot of people. Why would Jesus call the way to eternal life hard? What is he trying to say? Is he trying to say that to get to eternal life, you have to be a really, really good person and everybody else is a bad person? No, we know he's not saying that. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins? What's the very first thing he says in Matthew 5, verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you get it now? Why is it that so few make the hard way? Because you know what the hardest thing is for people to do? To admit, I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing that I bring to the table. See, the easy road is the road where you're at least upper middle class in spirit. And you're convinced, I'm a pretty good person, I'm okay. That's the easy road, the broad road that leads to destruction. The hard road is the one where you acknowledge your need for Christ. See, Matthew, in just Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say two things that sound contradictory. In chapter 10, he'll say, take up your cross and follow me. That sounds really hard. And then in chapter 11, Jesus will say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can it be both? I would encourage you to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. In it, he has a section where he answers the question, is Christianity hard or easy? And he does a very good job explaining it's both harder and easier than what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to make it on our own steam, but it's actually much harder to be poor in spirit. But that also is much easier because then Christ bears on him all of our hopes and all of our needs. So spot the difference, 
between the two gates. And the implied question, and I want to encourage you to think about the answer to this, which one are you on today? Are you on the broad one that leads to destruction? Or are you on the narrow one that leads to eternal life? You must judge that rightly. Now the second pair for us to spot, two trees. Look in verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Do you see? Jesus is commanding you to make a judgment. You need to make a judgment of those who stand as prophets. You must judge. How will you know them? By their fruits. They may come on a veneer of respectability, sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You must be judging. You must be discerning. Now he continues. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, from far away, it may look like a grape. When you get close, it's just a thorn or a thistle. Verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now I want you to notice that both trees have fruit. One of them, though, when you taste it, it's good. And the other one, when you take it, it's bad. Have you ever been over someone's house and in a bowl on the kitchen table, they have fake fruit? You don't want to grab that one, right? (laughs) It's not real, although a lot about it from the superficial level looks real. So the first part, verse 15 and 16, warns that we must judge those who are teaching us or speaking. Are they right or wrong? By their fruits we'll know them. But the next two verses mean we need to judge ourselves. Do I have a connection to the root that produces healthy fruit? Or do I just have fake fruit? Look how the verse continues, verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, you can't. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, you can't. If you have the spirit, you will bear healthy fruit, verse 19, but if you don't, every tree that does not bear good fruit, no matter how much fake fruit they have, they are cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We must make the judgment. So again, I ask you, Jesus asks you, Which one am I? Am I listening to people who are ravenous wolves? I need to be examining their fruit. And in my own life, is there healthy fruit coming or is there just a lot of fake fruit? I need to be able to make that judgment because my eternal destination is at stake. In the first pair, the two gates, one is to life, one's to destruction. In the second pair, one has health, the other gets cut down and thrown in the fire. This is a very serious eternal assessment that you must be able to make. All right, now the third assessment gets even more serious, and these are now two appeals. This is verses 21 through 23. What a sobering passage this one is. I can never read it without feeling it. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Which, what is that will? We're about to see it implied in verse 23. Verse 22, on that day, and let your heart break over this phrase, many, many will say to me, just like we saw the broad road that goes to destruction has the majority on it. So the majority of people who say, Lord, Lord, don't actually know the Lord. Many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Now, I've given you the illustration of a highlights magazine where you're trying to spot the difference. Did you spot it? What's the difference between these two appeals? The one appeal knows God's name. They call him Lord. They do all sorts of good works. Look at the prophecy they did, the powerful, mighty works they did. They even did them in God's name. But what did they not have that the other side had? They didn't actually know Christ personally, which is why Jesus says in verse 23, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, there's an eternal difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Lots of people know about God. That's not the same as knowing Jesus. Jesus says in John 17, verse three, this is eternal life, that you would know me, that you would know God and him whom he has sent, Christ. Knowing the difference is eternally significant. So again, you have to answer the question in your own heart before Jesus today, which one of those two are you? Judge rightly, which one of those two are you? Now the last pair that he wants us to spot the difference between two houses, verses 24 through 27. And each one of these pairs gets harder. Picture in the Highlights magazine, you're graduating from like the elementary level to the upper class level to college level. The differences are now finer and harder to spot. So verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who's built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. If you're doing the highlights magazine, you'll notice a lot's the same. Both have the storm. Both are houses. Both from a distance look fairly similar, but upon further inspection, you would notice that their foundations are entirely different. One is on the rock and one is on sinking sand. And how do you know which one's which? Did you catch it? They both hear Jesus. They're both willing to hear Jesus. But did you notice verse 24? One of them hears the word and does them, Verse 26, the other one hears the word and will not do them. There's a kind of person who's willing to listen to the things of God and the words of Jesus, but they're unwilling to actually follow and obey Jesus. See, that is actually a false faith. We need to be clear, we are saved by grace through faith And that is a gift. We are not saved on the basis of our works. But as Martin Luther put it so well, faith that saves is never alone. It always produces itself in the fruit of a connection to the root. And that root is Christ. If you're someone whose attitude is, I'm interested in what Jesus has to say, but I'm not willing to actually put anything he says into practice. That's not the heart of someone who knows him. That's not the heart of someone who has a relationship with him. One commentator writes, this passage leaves us with the uncomfortable demand to consider not just what we profess, but whether it is based on a genuine relationship with Jesus and issues in the life of a true disciple. So grace is opposed to earning, but is not opposed to grace-enabled effort of the fruit of obedience. And here we see that. So here are the four highlights, comparisons he gave us, two gates, 
Am I on the hard one because I've been willing to say I'm poor in spirit or am I on the easy one because in pride I refuse? Two trees. Has God been working in my life good fruit or do I just have fake fruit? Two appeals. Do I know about God or do I actually know God? And now two houses. Has God given me a new heart that's both willing to hear and do? Or am I uninterested in actually putting the words of Christ into practice? Now we focus on judgmentalism, what a dangerous sin it is, but now on the other side, the inability to judge. And let me say to all of you this morning and those of you watching at home, right now in America, we have a crisis of judgment. We have a serious crisis of a failure to make judgments. In fact, many Americans think that if you judge anything at any time, it's unloving. Have you ever heard the phrase, no one has the right to judge? Everyone just has their own decision. Everyone has their own truth. So let me pause on that concept for a couple minutes because Jesus here is commanding us to make judgments and commanding us to think judiciously. First, let me say that though it cloaks itself in a veneer of humility, there is actually nothing more arrogant than saying that everybody has their own truth. For example, think of the religious sphere. If you had someone who is a Muslim and you have someone who's a Christian, maybe someone else who's a Buddhist, and you say something like this, well, you know what? Everybody just has their own truth and no one has the right to judge and everybody just needs to come to their own conclusions. So, for example, if, if someone said, I am a Muslim and, and that's true for me, and you're a Christian, and that's true for you, and you're a Buddhist, and that's true for you. Well, then you've just dismissed the truth claims of all three of them, and the thousands of years of peoples and cultures and writing and thought and prayer that have gone into them. There is nothing more dismissive or arrogant than you could possibly say than everyone has their own truth, and my truth is to say that you all have your own truth. You see? You've just eliminated everybody else's stance, and you've been as unreasonable as possible. Not only is it arrogant to say that everyone has the right to judge, it's also dishonest. If you think no one has the right to judge, you just made a universal statement that is a judgment, (laughs) meaning it's dishonest to claim that no one has the right to judge because you're doing it. That's why Harvard political philosopher Michael Sandel writes, all notions of justice are inescapably judgmental. We must judge, everyone judges. To refuse to judge is a judgment. But not only is it arrogant and dishonest, it's also fragile. Imagine you get jury duty. I've had jury duty for years and I always got out of it for being in school because I was in school for so long. But one of these days they're gonna get me. (laughs) And when they do, I'll be on the dock and maybe there are 12 other jurors. And picture this scene, you're in the courtroom and it's jury duty and at the end of the weeks of arguments, it's obvious that a homicide has taken place. The evidence is demonstrable. But then the defense attorney gets up and hears her closing argument. No one in this room has any right to judge. I hope you would see through that smoke screen immediately and understand you're there to judge. That is the reason you're there and the evidence is being brought out so that a judgment can be made. If we say that we cannot make judgments then we cannot even definitively say that anything has historically occurred. But also let me press the point uh, that our culture needs to consider even further. When we say that it is loving or humble to not make judgments, it is actually unloving and profoundly hateful 
to fail to make judgments. Let me explain further. If you are unable to make judgments that are true for all places at all times, then you can never stand for anything good and you can never actually be against anything harmful. Some people think that truth is relative to a certain group of people at a certain time. They think there are no universal truth claims. But if there are no universal truth claims, we could never say a statement like, men and women are equally valuable. You couldn't say that unless there's the ability to have a universal truth claim. Do you know why Christians believe men and women are equally valuable? Because in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, God made male and female in the image of God. See, we have a universal truth claim because the creator gave value to both male and female. Don't be tricked by the cultural wars that are going on on the news. If you don't believe that, you have no logically consistent reason to say men and women are equally valuable. You have none, you have none. Not only can you not do it positively, you also can't do it negatively. To use some simple illustrations, I love my four children, and hence I teach them to judge whether or not it's safe to cross the street. I'm teaching them a, a stance of, of judgment that they must carry out. Not only do I teach them to judge, sometimes I make judgments about them. I still have one that is learning to walk, and so I put baby gates up because I'm telling him, you can't safely handle the stairs. I'm making a judgment on his account. If you can't make judgments, you're not loving, you're hateful. Judgments are required so that you can love other people. Judgments come out of love. Love means you recognize someone's proclivities, their dangers. Love means you recognize someone's boundaries. Love means you teach others to make judicious decisions. One final thought. In our American crisis of trying to get rid of judgment. The next time you hear someone say something like, well, hey, we all have our own story and no one has the right to judge. Do you realize what they've just told you? They've told you that you need to lock yourself up in a prison of your own ideas and never share your thoughts about anything with anybody else, meaning that the inability to judge is actually a straitjacket for thinking, for growth, for dialogue, and for development of any human being. And so now, you need to judge whether or not what Jesus is saying is true. So look down in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their own scribes. You see, at the end, the crowd made a judgment. Jesus is not like the silly religious people we've heard before. <laughs> We've never heard anybody talk the way Jesus is. We've never heard anybody be so clear about heaven and hell and life and death and sin and God and righteousness. So here's the judgment for you. John 3:36. Whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life and the wrath of God remains on him. You must judge today whether or not Jesus is the authoritative truth or whether or not you'll reject him. As you make that judgment, I understand that the truth of Jesus is often communicated through churches and I understand that churches have a tendency to be one of these two ditches. So let's talk honestly about that for a second. Some churches, frankly, are judgmental. They are unnecessarily narrow and abusive and they have a self-righteousness that pervades the culture, and that is wrong, and we should reject it. 
Other churches, and there are many like this now, are characterized by a you-can-believe-anything-you-want sort of social club atmosphere. Neither of those is what Jesus actually intends. He intends that his church would be full of the most humble people because we know that our sins are many and we only stand where we do by God's grace. And therefore, he also intends that his church would be full of people who are able to judge rightly when something is wrong. And so what is the solution that can help us not be someone who holds morality and truth with a slippery grip, and also, on the other hand, not be someone who holds morality and truth with a bludgeon hand ready to hurt other people? And the solution is to remember the cross. Earlier today, we worked through Isaiah 53. Did you notice in Isaiah 53 how many times it uses personal inclusive pronouns? How many times it says things like, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced not because he did anything wrong. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So let me encourage you by making this final reminder. It's very hard to be judgmental with others when you look at the cross and realize that it's your sin that nailed him there. It is also very hard to be loose and fail to make judgments when you look at the cross and realize that's how seriously God the judge takes sin. You see, the problem with these two views is they can't combine moral certainty with moral clarity and moral charity. But see, the cross puts them all together. We have moral certainty when we look at the cross. That's how serious sin is. But we also have moral clarity when we look at the cross. That's my sin on the innocent Lamb of God. But finally, we have moral charity when we look at the cross. That's amazing grace that God would send his son to take my punishment. So how can I not also share that grace with all who hear, understanding that all the good things I have are only a result of the grace flowing to me from the cross? So this morning, especially as we come back to take communion, let's look at the cross with the eyes that remove the beam in our own and that also help us to find the speck in others. Let's pray. Dear God, you have exposed to me at times my own sinful, judgmental heart, and I repent of it still. I am sad at how critical I can become of other people and not see significant sinful problems in my own life. And I think of moments that I'm, a, I'm embarrassed about now, honestly. I remember arguing with siblings. I remember arguing with fellow students and being so convinced that I was so right and that I needed to be heard. But actually what was going on was a failure to see my own pride. Um, and I still will need to see it. So I thank you, Lord, for brothers and sisters in the church who can help me find the sin in my own life. And I thank you for the Bible that brings it out. I also know, Lord, there's a failure on the other end. And it's a common one in American culture. We have duped ourselves into thinking that no one has the right to judge and we all just need to come to our own truth. And we silly, in a silly way, we call that love or tolerance when in fact it's hateful and it's evil. 
When someone is on the road to destruction, it is hateful not to tell them that. When someone has fake fruit and they will be cast down into the fire, it is hateful not to tell them that. When someone's house is on sand and the tide is coming in, it is hateful not to tell them to leave. And so thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ tells us how to judge rightly, but he first tells us to judge ourselves. So everyone here this morning and everyone watching at home, we need to pause before communion and think honestly, do I have a relationship with God? Or am I going to end up after death saying, Lord, Lord, and he looks me in the face and says, I never knew you. And then it's too late. In fact, Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed to man once to die. And then after this, the judgment. God, thank you that you will judge all the world. And we're glad for that because that means evil will be dealt with. But when we think of evil being dealt with, (laughs) we know that includes us. And so we're so grateful that at the cross, Jesus dealt with the sin of all who turn to Christ and trust in him. Lord, thank you that if we believe in Jesus, then there's no condemnation. There's no final judgment because Jesus bore it. Prepare us, Lord, to celebrate that with the sobriety, reverence, and joy that it demands. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.